Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson and here's Richard Hollingham. Hello. Once again, we're out of the studio, this time in Leicester at the National Space Centre, which you imagine it really is a giant space museum and exhibition centre, already busy, and we're recording about 10.30 in the morning. There's space memorabilia here, space suits to space toilets, a couple of sizeable rockets, a planetarium, and loads of uh, interactive exhibits. Exhibits. (laughs) Absolutely exhibits, but loads of them. Exhibits. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to Bepi Colombo, the European Space Agency's mission to Mercury, launching in just a few months' time. And there's a big connection between Leicester and this mission, but first, an extremely sweet account of the spacecraft. The thermal challenge is keeping the spacecraft cool in the inside while it's being toasted on the outside. It's kind of a baked Alaska of, of, of spacecraft, if you like. Later, scientists say their final goodbyes to Rosetta. We've also got Chris Hadfield, and we'll pay tribute to moonwalker Alan Bean. Well, before we get the podcast underway, let's... Uh, escape before we're bombarded with loads of children coming into this live space area into a quieter room it's a radio studio just off one of the galleries and we're joined by one of the lead scientists on the Bepi Colombo mission Professor Emma Bunce a member of her science team Dr Susie Imber who also happens to be the near superhuman physicist who recently won the BBC's TV reality show Astronauts Do You Have What It Takes and Tamala Maciel from the National Space Centre itself. In fact, let's start with you, Tamala, because uh, we heard there about Alan Bean recently passing away. Do the Apollo astronauts still resonate with you? And in fact, all of you here, are you all too young? <laughs> Uh, I think they do resonate, but it tends to come from the parents and the grandparents that remember sitting up late watching the moon landings. And at the top of our rocket tower, we have this room that's dressed like a living room from the 1960s. And people can go in there and watch the moon landing. It's really, really popular. And people write down their memories. So very much an intergenerational memory. Today, I think it's so important to have current astronauts because we do get a lot of questions. Did the moon landings even happen? That's an increasingly que- you know, popular question that we get asked. That's quite shocking. It is. And it's, it's the blog that is by far the most popular we've ever written is, did the moon landings actually happen? So there is an appetite for it, but it's really important to have the, the current astronauts as well paving the way for future missions. That whole question, Susie, of whether the, um, the, the moon landings happen, I mean, you've been involved in quite a lot of television recently. You know how difficult it is to stage TV shows. It would actually be easier to land on the moon than stage the landing on the moon, don't you feel? No, I absolutely agree. And I think it's really interesting to hear Tamala's perspective of the questions that people ask, because most of the things that I do, I'm encountering people that are interested in space, and people don't tend to ask me if the moon landings were real. So I'm really interested to hear that that's a popular question from the young people. What about the moon landings for you, the Apollo astronauts? You look as young as Tamala. I love the way Tamala <laughs> said about its parents or grandparents. I thought, well, that's put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't alive when the moon landings <laughs> yeah. happened. <laughs> but I think they are really important for us today, actually, because those people who went out there were the real pioneers of space flight. And I think it's too easy to forget what the, the early pioneers did and just take for granted what they achieved. And actually, I think it's important not to do that. So I think they do resonate today. Emma? Definitely, and I agree with what Tamala was saying about parents. My mum actually gave me a cutting that she had kept 
from the newspaper of, of the, the first walking on the moon. So for me, I was quite young at the time when she gave me that. And so that was part of my sort of journey into being inspired about space in general. So yes, I am too young to remember the moon landings, but definitely the, the space programme in general and astronauts in general were certainly part of what inspired me to do what I do today. I am the only person here then who was old enough to actually remember them. Yes. Right. Yep. Fine. That's made me feel fantastic. A couple of weeks ago, Susie, Emma and I were actually all together looking at a six metre high spacecraft called Bepi Colombo to celebrate the newest exhibit at London Science Museum. The Bepi Colombo mission is an unusual one. It's a joint mission between ESA and Japan. It consists of not one, but two spacecraft, the European Mercury Planetary Orbiter and the Japanese Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter, as well as a sunshield called MOSIF, plus a transfer module, which will ensure that everything gets there. I began by talking to the Science Museum's Deputy Keeper of Technologies and Engineering, Doug Millard, who explained that the spacecraft on display wasn't just for show. It's not a replica, it's not a model as many understand it. This is real. This is called the structural thermal model, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it was used to actually develop the flight model, the spacecraft that's going to Mercury. Specifically, shaking it about, because when you launch on an Ariane 5, you get shaken about, seriously. But perhaps more importantly, uh, because we know about rocket launches, what we didn't know until this mission was put together was how to deal with the intense heat of going to Mercury, orbiting Mercury. So uh, it's also been tested in the European Space Agency's environmental chamber, which combines very low temperatures with very high temperatures. It almost looks as if parts of it, like the sun shield, as if it's covered in a silver duvet. It's the insulation blanket, MLI. They, they love acronyms, so that's multi-layer insulation. Thank you. It is covered in this blanket, but it is comprising 49 layers. It's a mixture of ceramic, aluminium, and, and all to do with you know keeping it at a stable internal temperature. And it's, it's nice to see the solar panels at the side. Obviously, at the moment, they're folded because I suspect if they were unfurled, you'd decapitate several of your visitors because these yes. are pretty big, aren't they? Aren't they the, yes, the biggest or something that's been used uh, for well, a spacecraft? They're jolly. They, they must be one of the biggest. If we were to extend the array that we have attached to the transfer module, that's the lower part of the spacecraft, uh, it'd be 15 metres, so it'd zoom that past nice. where we're standing yeah. and to hit the wall. <laughs> and there's another one on the other side, so the, the total uh, diameter is uh, is 30 metres. That is really large, isn't it, as a, as a sort of wingspan, yes, so to speak. Yes. Is this going to be a permanent exhibit? Because um, obviously the launch window opens mm. in October. Yes. It's going to take seven years to get there. Mm. Is it going to be around for the arrival at Mercury? We hope so. There are no plans to move it. At some point, perhaps round about seven years' time, we may have a, a new space gallery because we're starting to work on that. And so maybe the two will coincide. Who knows? Brilliant. Who knows? Well, it's lovely to see it here. Thank you. Thank you. Mark McCorkran, Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the European Space Agency. Could you tell me something about the journey that Bepi Colombo is going to make? Because it's quite an extraordinary one. You could get to Mercury in just three months if you fired off on your rocket and then went careening downhill towards Mercury, towards the sun. The gravity's strong. You would get there very quickly. The problem is you wouldn't be able to stop. And we want to go into orbit around Mercury. So we have to take a much more um, circuitous route involving nine planetary flybys using the gravity at each encounter to slow us down a bit and move us closer into the centre of the solar system. So a year and a half after launch, we come back to the Earth. And then that puts us on a trajectory to Venus, which we encounter twice. And then after Venus, we go to Mercury six times. And that's not meaning that we fly past it, go around the solar system once, come back to Mercury again, before we finally inject ourselves into orbit at the right speed seven years later. It's also got solar electric propulsion as a way to get there. You often tend to associate that with longer distances because it's such a, you know, a slow way of getting to places. I think of this as an outer solar system, although I know it has been used on Smart 1 to the Moon, for instance. 
So even though we're using the gravity assists of, of the planets, that's not enough to get us to slow us down fully. You could use chemical propulsion, but that means normal rockets. That means carrying a lot of fuel. The alternative is to use these ion engines, solar electric propulsion. So we'll be carrying 500 kilos of xenon gas. We then put it into an electric field. We strip the electrons away from the ions, get the ions up to very high speed and shoot them out of the back. It doesn't give us very much thrust, but what it does do is that it allows us to run them for up to two years. And so during that seven-year journey, these ion engines will be on for, for two years. We have four on board in total. Two will be used at a time. And when you use them in a pair you get 290 millinewtons thrust. Now, it's a meaningless number unless I try to put it as a metaphor. That's the same as three pound coins on the tip of your finger. So it's a tiny amount of um, braking power to slow down a, a four-ton spacecraft moving it up to 50,000 kilometers an hour. But if you leave the brakes on for long enough, it slows you down. How does this compare? I mean, ESA sort of, you know, I, I won't use the word churning out spacecraft because obviously it's a very meticulous <laughs> long process, but it's doing some incredible work. How does this spacecraft compare with, say, ExoMars in terms of complexity? The challenges in BepiColombo are unprecedented. Handling that enormous temperature coming from the sun by being a factor of three closer, so ten times the brightness of the sun, being right next to a body, which is Mercury, which is 450 degrees. The thermal challenges, keeping the spacecraft cool in the inside while it's being toasted on the outside. It's kind of a baked Alaska of, of, of spacecraft, if you like. Keeping that all together has been in incredibly challenging and has meant an enormous amount of development work. It's actually... Uh, Colombo is the most expensive science mission we've ever flown and that's reflected in all of the work that's needed to be done to get the technology ready for launch. So my name is Mathilde Royer-Germain. I'm in charge of Earth observation, navigation and science at Airbus. My name is Markus Schäkle. I am the project manager for the spacecraft. I'm based in Friedrichshafen. Mathilde is based in Toulouse. The MTM, the transfer module, the structure was built in Grisa, it's also Airbus uh, in Madrid. Then the structure of the Mercury orbiter was built by RUAC in Switzerland. And the MOSIF on the top is also a RUAC uh, development. And the whole mission is a result of a cooperation between 83 companies around Europe and Japan. That's a great achievement as well. What difficulties did this present in terms of making it so that your four constituent parts all built in different places all fit together? The difficulty is really to bring these four modules together, to have these so-called intermodule hardware, that it really safely separates the modules after the seven years' journey to Mercury. This is important. If it would not separate, the mission is gone. So this intermodule hardware was a challenge. But building parts of a spacecraft all over Europe is our classical job. This is what we are doing nearly with each satellite we are building in Airbus. But special here on Baby Colombo is the separation mechanism. We need to decouple uh, the modules when we approach Mercury. Because that's the thing that's different, isn't it? There are actually two spacecraft on here, not yes. one. Yes, correct, correct. And these two spacecraft, the Japanese orbiter and the European orbiter, they fly a different orbit around Mercury and do their own, own missions. Huh? And the data are then combined at the end by the scientists. Matilda, what are the challenges in terms of the conditions that this spacecraft is going to have to put up with? The spacecraft will have to um, survive extreme challenges and extreme conditions because the environment around Mercury is so hot that we had to invent ways for all the instruments and the spacecraft to be able to survive so the conditions will be absolutely extreme, be it um, facing the planet or facing the deep space. So what temperature ranges will this be able to cope with? The hot temperatures will go up to 350 degrees. And the coldest? 150. Mi minus? Minus, minus, uh, minus sorry, minus. yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what, what temperature does it have to be inside for the instruments? Below 50, so we have about up to 40 inside the spacecraft so you see the gradient huh, is nearly 400 kelvin from the outer side to the inner side excited about the launch yes for sure <laughs> for sure after this long period of yeah. development testing huh, it's it's 
now 12 years nearly. Yes, with the la- at the launch time, it's 12 years. It's not only a technological success, it's also a great human adventure. It certainly is. And two people also on that adventure to Mercury are Emma Bunce and Susie Imber. Uh, Emma, you're the principal investigator of one of the 11 instruments on board, the Mercury Planetary Orbiter. That's the the European spacecraft. It's called, your instrument's called MIX, or sort of M-I-X-S, which stands for Mercury Imaging X-ray Spectrometer. So what will this instrument, what does it do, first of all? The instrument is an X-ray telescope and spectrometer. And the point of the instrument is there are two main things. The first is that it's designed to work out the composition or what Mercury is actually made of. So to look at the surface and work out what it's made of. And the other thing that we're going to do is investigate how Mercury's magnetic environment, its magnetosphere and charged particles within that magnetosphere actually interact with the surface. So the way that the instrument works is actually really clever. And it starts with the sun. The process starts with the sun. So the sun's high temperature upper atmosphere actually produces x-rays. And those x-rays travel towards Mercury and interact with the surface. So solar x-ray photons actually impact the surface of Mercury and interact with individual atoms on the surface. So an x-ray photon from the sun will actually knock an electron out of its shell in an individual atom. And as that electron is knocked out of its shell, another electron will drop down into the shell and will release energy in the form of another X-ray. So those second X-rays, the fluorescent X-rays as they're known, is what MIX will capture. That's what we're going to measure. And because those electron shell energy changes and releases of energy in the form of an X-ray are unique to the atom on the surface, it means that by Measuring the X-rays and the intensity of the X-rays, we can actually work out precisely what the atoms are on the surface. And you say fluorescent, so does that mean fluorescent as we understand fluorescence being, you know, day glow? Uh, not, not quite, but a similar sort of process in the sense that it's energy being released from a, an interaction process which is going on on the surface, and we will actually measure those, as they're called, fluorescent X-rays as a result of that rather complex interaction process. So it's not simply a a reflection of X-rays from the sun, it's actually a rather complicated interaction process that then gives us a unique fingerprint of the atom on the surface. And because MIX is an imaging, that's the iron MIX, the imaging part is really important, that means that we'll be able to actually build up pictures of the surface um, and its composition for the first time. That's just simply never been done before in planetary science. So does that mean you'll get a a sort of map of the surface of where different elements are? I mean, is this elements you're essentially looking at? Yes, that's right. We're looking at elements um, and we will work with other instrument teams actually to look at the mineralogy of the surface, like the um, uh, Mertis instrument, for example, and also with the visible images. But you know, essentially we can look at the global scale with one part of the instrument. So there are two telescopes. One is a collimator. So I I like to think of that as a bucket, essentially counts up all the x-rays coming from the surface. And that gives you a a global picture of what Mercury's surface is made of. And the second part is this imaging telescope. And that's what's completely new, has never been on a planetary mission before and that means that we can resolve and create a picture of the surface so we will be able to have um, detailed maps which is very exciting which we've just never seen before. Which is sort of similar to the ones we have of the moon at the moment. That's exactly right yes it's been done um, that's right we have similar information from the moon and in fact the messenger spacecraft which has already been to Mercury has produced x-ray composition information from Mercury but but Bepi Colombo is much more sophisticated in that, you know, it's designed specifically to look at the surface and we will have a much better coverage of the surface, both the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. And um, the instrumentation is is slightly different. I like the fact that the European Mercury mission is more sophisticated than the American one. Um, Susie, uh, what 
is your role as a member of the, the science team? So I'm a co-investigator on the instrument, which means I'm part of the team that Emma leads. There are several of us at the university and we will be collecting the data as it comes back from the spacecraft and we'll be providing it to the rest of the community. That's part of our role. So we built the instrument, delivered it, and of course we'll be the first people to get it back and interpret it and then deliver it to everyone else so that we can make new discoveries. The other thing that we'll be doing, of course, is data analysis ourselves. So there's a few areas that we're really interested in. And from a personal perspective, the one I'm most interested in is looking at, it's kind of the equivalent of the aurora on the Earth. I hesitate to call it that because it's slightly different. But the magnetosphere, this magnetic environment of Mercury, accelerates particles and they hit the surface. And they also generate X-rays in a, in a similar process, an analogous process to the Earth's aurora. And we've seen it using the MESSENGER spacecraft, NASA's mission. But as Emma mentioned earlier, the instrument that was on board MESSENGER was very different from Bepi Colombo. Uh, less sophisticated, I think. You're yeah, part. less sophisticated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, those were her words. She's, she's right. Um, it was. So the imaging aspect is is really revolutionary for the science that we want to do. But the other part is that Messenger was in a highly elliptical orbit, which means it got really good resolution images of one hemisphere, but much less good. <laughs> I <would say> that. <laughs> Poorer resolution in the other hemisphere. And so what we'll do with Pepe Colombo is be able to look at both hemispheres. And that's really important for our science because Mercury is a slightly bizarre planet in that its magnetic field is offset from the center offset to the north so the center of the magnetic field is not at the center of the planet it's quite an unusual situation in planetary science it's something we want to study and the only way that we can really study the impact of this on the surface is by having high resolution in both hemispheres and Pepe Colombo will give us that. What about this journey the seven-year journey. I had Mark McCochran talking about it. You can't just ping something at Mercury. It's got to bounce around. And the thing is, it's coming back again. <laughs> you're sending it out, and then it's coming back to Earth. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, uh, you know, a year and a half after it launches, we're all going to be standing there looking a bit sheepish, saying, uh, <laughs> there, there, it, there it goes, past us again. Yeah, it's a long journey. It is. We have to be very patient in these planetary missions. And it takes longer to get to Mercury than it does to some of the giant planets in the mm. solar system. So... It is a long journey, but we won't be sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting. We've got a lot of work to do in the meantime associated with development of various aspects of, of our instrument itself. So, so what will okay. you be doing, Emma? <laughs> because there is, a, there is a serious point underlying this. I mean, it happened with Rosetta. Is teams change? People leave their jobs. People change. Mm. And keeping just, I mean, the, the boring thing, aspect of keeping the funding going. Yeah. While between launch boring, and getting but very there. Very important. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's my job. Yeah. That's a really good question because actually it's the it's the perennial problem in planetary science or any kind of long missions that last half a career. Really, we're talking about from the beginning of designing the instrument through to actually collecting the data when we're at Mercury it's going to be 20 years so it's a really good question about keeping the team and that's what we're working hard to do at the moment and we have kept a core part of our technical team so what we'll be doing over the next few years is developing um, a data pipeline which enables the raw data from the spacecraft to be processed um, and you know put through a quick pipeline calibrated and into a usable format that, that we will be able to start interpreting, as Susie says, doing the data analysis. I've said it in one sentence, but that's a huge amount of work, and there are many other elements of, of, of work that we can do using ground reference models, for example, um, a sort of simulation of the instrument on the ground so we can continue to work out how to get the best from our data set, and that involves a lot of work over many years, so... I must admit, it didn't really hit me until I was recently with a, a load of space scientists and astronomers from the James Webb Space Telescope in Liverpool at an astronomy conference recently. And the number of people I spoke to who said their PhD students were devastated at the delay because the funding had run out and they'd put their whole PhDs based on the data they were going to, to receive. So at least for you, yes, it's a long journey. Once it's launched, you at least know what your timeline's going to be. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, literally there's nothing stopping us, isn't there, once we're in space, so we're good. So, yes, but it's, I mean, you know, the journey to get to this point for launch for Bepi Colombo has been a long one, and there have been many delays. Um, and I think in terms of PhD students, I think we're always very cautious about making sure that 
that there are projects that students can complete within their PhD that are low risk and, and you know, leave the more risky things to, to people who are, you know, perhaps slightly more secure in their, in their job, actually. So it's a consideration. Now, Tamla, we've been hearing a, a lot about the, the local connection, mm. the Leicester connection and the University of Leicester connection. Presumably there's going to be a big party here, isn't there? Absolutely. So 5th of October is when the launch window opens and we're really excited to celebrate with all of the visitors and the schools that are here on that day just to celebrate the planet know more about the planet Mercury, which is a really weird planet that not a lot of people know about, Uh, celebrate the mission. Um, And I think Susie and Emma are being very humble, but this is local grown technology. The X-ray instrument mix is cutting edge, and it's Leicester scientists doing it. So we can show people our flight spare instrument in the galleries and say, this is built here. You know, this is something really to be proud of. So we're really looking forward to celebrating the mission. And in particular, I'm looking forward to seeing what the European Space Agency do in terms of telling the story because they did a fantastic job with Rosetta, creating this comic book character, sort of the storyline. And I know they're planning to do the same with Beppe Colombo. That's right, actually. It's not I've cute, just... though, is it? Oh, it will be. Oh, I've just... it's, no, it's, come on. it's huge and big. Oh, yeah. Well, so is... Well, a, so... By power of description, huge <laughs> and big. I was going to say, but so is Yogi Bear, and people loved Yogi Bear. You know, I think you, you've got to go with that. And in fact, that was quite interesting, because at the Rosetta science meeting I've just recently yeah. been to, a lot of the scientists came up to... Myself and Emily Baldwin, who works um, in the ESA communications team, to say thank you for being part of the communication yeah. process of, of Rosetta because they really appreciated what it had done mm. and they saw how much it had inspired we saw it, people. We saw it here. So with the Rosetta mission, you know, even that, that ending, the landing on the comet at the very end of the mission – but we had packed galleries and we brought in people to talk about the mission. But it was really incredible to see a European robotic mission, no astronauts involved, and people were behind the story and they knew about it. And it was front page news. That was wonderful. So I can't wait for Beppe. OK, Susie, that's the question then. Do you necessarily need astronauts? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> astronauts have a really unique role, actually. Um, I think that when you send a person into space, as we saw with Tim Peake, that really adds a personal element that people are able to relate to. And while we're going to explain how amazing our mission is and show all the data and get people involved and interested in it, it's just a different, uh, it's a different kind of picture for the public. So um, I think astronauts are important. I think they have a role. But I think missions like ours are also, you know, exploratory missions. We're finding out new things. And I think it's important to communicate those appropriately and get people enthusiastic about it. Also, you wouldn't want to send an astronaut to Mercury, really. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Emma, they Here's something that's potentially um, cartoon material here because I've been reading that Mix has a sister instrument called Six. (laughs) (laughs) So so how is Six going to complement Mix? Yes, the family of instruments. Yeah, Six is an absolutely essential component of the science that we're going to do. So I mentioned earlier about how the basic measurement that we're going to make actually is a function of what's happening on the sun. So the sun's activity is continuous, so you have a continuous source of X-rays, but it's not constant and it varies with solar activity. So the more solar flares that you get, the brighter Mercury surface will shine and the better data, actually, that we're going to be able to gather. So we need to be able to calibrate what we see from the surface depending on what's happening on the sun. So six is the solar monitor and it monitors the X-rays coming from the sun. So it looks in the opposite direction, and and measures the activity from the sun. And that tells us whether or not a particular area on Mercury surface is shining brighter in magnesium because it's a particularly X-ray bright moment from the sun or whether that's a high magnesium content area of the surface. So we have to use that data continuously throughout the mission. We can't calibrate without that data set so it's extremely important so without six you can't have mix <laughs> yes you, it's kind of what the names mean in finnish i seem to remember there's some there's some uh, i can't remember so exactly not only is an acronym there's some why clever, that's why that's yeah, it yeah. why that's why that's, okay yeah. why that's why right yeah so we can still collect data um it's not that we couldn't operate without the other instrument um so we can still collect the data but we need to know the activity in the sun. So it's extremely important that they work together. Well, we'll catch up with our guests again towards the end of the podcast. And still to come, we'll take a look around some of the stranger exhibits here at the National Space Centre in Leicester. 
And Sue will be talking to astronaut Chris Hadfield about a space shambles. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. This is Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. As you can hear, I've come out of the uh, National Space Centre's quiet sort of studio room into the area where the exhibits are. And uh, since we're all over social media, we'll be sharing some pictures from our visit here today in Leicester. Uh, There should also be some pictures from Russia, where I'm heading right after this recording to commentate on the launch of Alexander Gerst to the International Space Station. So let's talk about some of the exhibits here. This is my favourite gallery in the centre, and I'm with curator Dan Kendall. What do you call this room? Uh, So we're in Space Oddities at the moment. And it's great. You've got some really cool stuff. Let's talk about this first of all. It looks disturbing, I would say. A funnel, tube and kind of bellows arrangement. This is a space toilet from a Soyuz. It is, yes. So this is the type of toilet that they would actually have in the orbital module. We're looking at a model that dates back to the sort of the 1960s, so the first type of Soyuz that you get, much like the Soyuz 7KOK that we have on display elsewhere in the centre. So this is in the sort of the living area, if you like. So when they do a two-day... Uh, mission to would have been uh, Mir or one of the, the Soyuz space stations, now the International Space Station, this is the toilet they can get to use. Yeah, absolutely. So they've got a bit more space, a bit of privacy as well as they float into the orbital module. And even today, you know, they, they still have this. The design has really not changed. With, with the Russian space programme, if something works, you just keep improving on it rather than completely reinventing the wheel. And, 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 the, and the theme, and no matter what we do, no matter what stories I put in this temporary exhibition space, it always comes back to how do you go to the toilet in space it's everybody's favorite so uh, yeah that's why it's on display at the moment well without going into too much detail but i think it's fairly obvious looking at it where you stick things as a sort of funnel arrangement but i am curious about the, the sort of bellows part in the middle that sort of orange almost looks like um the, the float that you get in uh, in types of toilet yeah, it does. I think it's to do with the actual uh, the the vacuum system that draws the liquid away. So so when the uh, the material leaves the cosmonauts, the the light suction and flow of air that goes through the tubing system is what draws that material away, keeps everything neat and tidy, and uh, uh, keeps the mission safe, which it obviously wouldn't be in the uh, without that in microgravity climate they're in. Very good, very good explanation there. That's that's why we have a family rating on uh, on iTunes. Uh, let's talk about this then. It's, it's a giant check, Lovell and Aldrin Bank of Pad Nineteen, Cape Kennedy, Florida. What on earth is this? Yes, it's definitely one of my favourite objects in the collection. So this is um, this is a check that the crew that you talk about from Gemini Twelve gave to a guy called Gunter Vent. Now, Gunter Vent is the pad leader for the whole of the Mercury and Gemini missions. So his job is basically to be at the top of the rocket stack, and he's the person who checks the astronauts out just before they launch. He shakes their hand, he makes sure they're all strapped in safely, and he has responsibility for all of the fit-out team to say, is everything as safe as it possibly can be? It's obviously very dangerous launching into space, but he does everything in his power to make it as safe as possible. He's name-checked, isn't he? In fact, he features in Apollo in the movie Apollo 13. He does, yeah. It's a... Uh, the joke is basically that on Apollo 13, as they launch off, they say, um, I wonder where going to vent. Actually, that was said on Apollo 7, but they kind of uh, played with the historical narrative a bit to put it on Apollo 13 on the film. Um, but he, his story is really interesting in that he he was of German origin, obviously, which is the idea of this particular joke check, in that it's a retirement check. So at the end of the Gemini programme, uh, he wasn't going to be working on Apollo because the company he worked for hadn't got the contract for the command module. So Lovell and Aldrin decided that they were going to give him this retirement check. It's a, for a, it's for a million Deutschmarks, playing again on that sort of German heritage that he had. And it's part of a rich history in jokes and pranks and... Uh, 
almost the lucky charm of giving Gunter something just before you launch as well. The thing I really like about it is the fact that the date's been changed on the check um, twice, which means that Lovell and Aldrin, who should have been thinking about their mission when uh, weather and certain things meant that it was pushed back by a day, they were panicking and thinking, oh, I've got to get the joke check sorted out so that it's correct for, uh, for vent. So, yes, it changes from uh, November the 9th crossed out, November the 10th crossed out, and then it has November the 11th, 1966, signed by uh, Jim Lovell and uh, Buzz Aldrin Edwin E it's Edwin E Aldrin isn't it it is yes so this is before he had his official name change to Buzz which followed sort of a few years later this is back in the Gemini period when he um, had his first launch and uh, he sort of proved concept of uh, that it was possible to spacewalk and a really significant mission in the programme this whole thing, though, this whole thing of the, the jokes and the, the banter and all the rest of it, it does seem extraordinary. It seems very, a very different sort of era. And I guess it's the nature of the sort of people that were really putting their lives on the line every time they launched into space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of test pilots. It was just the way of the world that they had these sort of jokes going on. I mean, they didn't always work out perfectly and with someone like Gunter Vent there were there were some incidences that didn't go so well so on Apollo 14 Al Shepard gave him a again playing on that German theme he gave him a, a Nazi helmet that was kind of in reference to the TV show Hogan's Heroes and uh, Colonel Klink but when NASA TV picks up a swastika on a helmet of a member of staff just before the launch, it didn't really go down quite the way that they'd planned. But, yeah, the, it's, all, it's partly as well when you talk about the dangers they were undertaking. It is a tragic story because they thought he was retiring on Gemini 12 because of the changing contractors for the command module. Um, and then, of course, you have the Apollo 1 fire, where through no fault of the, uh, of the team who were sealing the crew in, during a pad test with plugs-out test, there was an unfortunate incident where... The uh, the command module set fire, and unfortunately, all three crew members were killed. Now, Gunsevent, although there's nothing to say that it would have been any different if he'd have been working, but he uh, he definitely related later in life that he really regretted not being there, and that maybe he might have spotted something. He might have been able to change things. Probably not in reality, but I, I think you're always going to live with that. By the time that Apollo 7 comes around and you have the first uh, actual crewed mission in the Apollo flights, uh, Wally Shearer, who was commander, was adamant they had to get Gunter Vent back. They all trusted him, they all respected him. They knew that he wouldn't accept anything other than the very best before their launch. Whatever they did, it was going to be dangerous, but he was doing his utmost to make sure that um, things went right. They called him the, uh, the pad Fuhrer because that was how he ran the pad. If anyone flicked a switch on his team that he hadn't agreed, he'd have security just come and burly take them away and just remove them off the pad let's talk about one other exhibit in this uh, in this area this in the oddities and that's this tile it's got a picture of well it's not the space shuttle it's uh, it's almost almost the space shuttle it's the baran on it and this is a what a real tile from the baran the uh, the soviet space shuttle it is yeah there's two on display so the black one is a flown one from the only uh, baran that did fly um, into space, which was not crude, but the the thing about Baran, and this is why Space Odysseys is so good for us, in that we can't always tell these stories around the rest of the centre where we have everything themed, but in this one area, as long as the object has a story to tell, and in this case it does, it means we can talk about something like the, uh, the Russian version of the space shuttle that not many people will know about, but as soon as they see it, they will think, ah, this doesn't half look like the actual shuttle. I'm sure there's plenty of industrial espionage going on, but at the same time, there were significant differences between the two. But what we have here is a couple of tiles that were used to protect it on re-entry as it heats up during that process. The one that uh, on the left-hand side that you described actually has a painting of the whole stack of the of the uh, of the Baran being launched into space. It was done by an artist called Andreas Hoge, uh, who went by the pseudonym of Andorra. Um, so he's the reason why we have these, in that he collected these he was working in in east germany so they had strong connections with soviet russia and he was um the first civilian supposedly to go onto the baikonur cosmodrome and he painted a proton rocket which he was supposedly the first art ever launched into space um, so his story in itself is quite interesting so we it gives us a chance to talk not just about the actual brand but also how you know how we get hold of these objects and let's say the whole point of space oddities is to give us the opportunity to do that next year or later this year 
sort of December time, we hope to convert the whole area to the theme of Apollo, just to mark the 50th anniversaries that are coming up next year as well. Uh, and as a curator, that's a brilliant thing for me to be able to do, just take one small section of the centre and tell new stories and hope that when people come back to visit us, they're going to see different things each time that they come. Well, Dan, thank you very much. I, honestly, this is the, this is the, best, the best stuff. <laughs> I love things like this. Well, that's yeah, kind of you to say. I, I love writing the copy, and, and there's a team of us behind that that do so. And yeah, we, we love to be able to tell new stories, which is what we're all about. Thank you, Richard and Dan, and uh, more than a few reasons to come along to the National Space Centre in Leicester there. On June the 15th, the Royal Albert Hall in London is hosting something called a Space shambles. It's an evening of space, basically, and lots of entertainment. One of the hosts is the comedian Robin Ince, and the show features scientists, facts such as one of our guests, Susie Imber, and also astronauts. And one of those astronauts is the co-host. You might recognise his name, Chris Hadfield. Anyway, I spoke to him recently by Skype about why he's taking part. The challenge of of exploring the rest of the universe is by no means single track or or monotone it is it is a, a cacophony of problems and and a symphony of solutions hopefully and and i've been at it for most of my life i, I decided to be an astronaut when i was nine and have pursued it my entire life and served as an astronaut for 21 years and found lots of ways to to try and um, turn those dreams into reality and the stories that come from it are, are uh, right on the edge of the human experience, so it's so it's a lot of fun to try and share. And I've I've shared it lots of different ways. But working with people like Robin Ince, we've done multiple things. We host a big show in Toronto every year called Generator, which is like a variety show of ideas on stage. And then I've done stuff with Robin and and uh, Brian Cox as well in their uh, shambling <laughs> activities also. But I think it makes it more fun, rather than just one dry lecture from a specific speaker, to have a bunch of people from very different backgrounds all talking sort of in the same concert of ideas that are related to each other, and not just through through uh, black and white slides, but through music and poetry and, and art and, and uh, scientific uh, explanation and demonstration. I think it makes it more memorable and definitely more digestible. I, you know, I speak all over the world all the time, and I have for 25 years. And, and uh, I always try and do my best to share the weirdness of the experiences that I've had so that other people can not only be entertained by them, but actually maybe think about them differently or, or have their own behavior change as a result of some of the ideas that have come from these experiences. So to me, that's that's both the measure of what we're doing and the purpose of it, but also the real delight of it is to present ideas in a way that, that it changes people's thoughts about them. Will you be playing your guitar? I don't know. Um, probably. There, there's a, there's lots of music in the evening and comedy and ideas and presentations. I haven't decided yet. Uh, <laughs> probably. I, I mean, I, I've, I play music all the time. I, I led an expedition to the Arctic recently. Um, with I had uh, one other musician on board, and we wrote and recorded an entire album on this old Soviet icebreaker up by the North Pole. And we debuted it in the fall with the Vancouver Symphony, and it went really well. We're, we're playing again with a with a symphony in, um, in September. And I've just recorded several songs on, on my brother's album, actually, all about uh, flight, two songs that I wrote on that album. And so, yeah, I play music all the time, and I take a guitar everywhere that I go. It sounds as though you're enjoying re- retirement, astronaut retirement anyway, it, it, although you're obviously not retired in terms of all the other um, activities that you're going, particularly on the engagement of science. You must be keeping an eye on what's going on in the space world at the moment. What do you think of the current plans to return to the moon? We go through a standard pattern in human history of, of, uh, of exploration, and then eventual settlement. And the first stage is to live somewhere and become have some subset of your population become dissatisfied with it. And then they get the impetus to go somewhere else. And, and we, we send out probes and we go look and we go see and go, no, we don't want to live there. Or, oh, yeah, that, let's give that a try. And then we transition from the early probing exploration phase once the technology has gotten good enough that we settle there. It's interesting. I'm working with several space companies right now 
everything from small little startups right through to um, the space agencies. I work for the Creative Destruction Lab, you know, in Toronto at the University of Toronto. That is an incubator for space ideas, um, and or at least one of the streams. And we bring together organizations and businesses and venture capitalists and business people to try and take bright, young, inventive ideas and turn them into actually something productive and contributory. So, yeah, I, I think it's natural and good, and it's where we are in history. Chris Hadfield on Space Shambles, which is on at the Royal Albert Hall in London on June the 15th. Um, Susie, we can't not mention your success in the TV programme, Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? And uh, now that we know that you do have uh, what it takes, do you have any plans to take it further and apply to the European Space Agency, for instance? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I now have a letter of recommendation from Chris Hadfield to support a future application. That was the prize for the programme. But sadly, they're not accepting any any applications for astronaut training at the moment. Uh, The last round of, of... job adverts I guess that said astronaut that went out was 10 years ago Uh, yes and so we don't know when when they'll have a call out for astronauts so as soon as they do I'm going to be the first person to hand in my application you want like on the newsletter so that you get automatic automatic (laughs) updates yeah Uh, Susie isn't part of the issue that there simply isn't the need for that many astronauts anymore because you've only got three seats on the Soyuz and only one of those can go to a European astronaut whereas you look back at the 80s or the 90s you had the space shuttle with seven seats at a time and the Soyuz flying. That's absolutely right yes so at the moment there just aren't the seats required to sustain a big astronaut corps. On the other hand also when you look at astronauts it takes a long time and a lot of money to train these people and so they don't just go up for one mission their lifetime as an astronaut lasts for decades and so as a result we don't need a new round of astronauts every five years it doesn't work that way. Um, so when there's a need for more astronauts to be trained, they'll put out a call at that time. Um, and again, we don't know when that will be. Are you reasonably optimistic that, that with these new uh, vehicles like the Orion, the Dragon, the whatever the Boeing one's called, I can never remember, Star Chaser Dreamliner, or Dreamliner or some, something like that. Yeah. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there are other opportunities that are becoming available as well. So historically, we've all had astronauts going up with government programmes, large government programmes. Uh, but those those days are changing. Um, and with the commercial spaceflight industry uh, being increasingly capable of sending people into space, that gives other opportunities. So you don't have to necessarily go up with NASA or the European Space Agency. It'll be a very different experience if you get a lift with a commercial company. Um, you won't be sitting on the International Space Station for six months. You'll go up for a short trip in, in the near future anyway and then come back again. But it is going to give more people an opportunity to experience what it's like to be in space. And so at this point, we're at a really interesting we're at a really interesting time when, when we have commercial space flight and we have the government agencies as well. So it's an exciting future, I think. Emma, regardless of um, the fact that Bepi Colombo doesn't have any astronauts, I suspect that this mission, like many of the others that the university has been involved in in the past, is a huge draw for students who want to study space science for your, for your department. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, Certainly that's why I went to the University of Leicester as an undergraduate 20-something years ago. Um, And and absolutely right. I think that Bepi Colombo is huge. It's a huge opportunity for the university um, to really um, encourage students to come and work in a department where the staff that will be teaching them the core physics and maths that they need to know for their degree are also working on these um, space programs and you know building instruments and analysing new data from a planet that no one has seen before. So we really hope that that's the case, that it will encourage students to come and do their degrees at Leicester and PhD students to come and work on the data when we eventually get it. Because Leicester, of course, was involved with Skylark, one of the compounds, one of the pioneers of the sounding rockets. I mean, you, it is an incredible. And I remember coming here Years and years ago, when the Beagle 2 control centre, well, sad, yeah, everybody's shoulders dropped then, um, was was going to be based here, just next door, is that right? Yeah, we had the control room just next door. It was a huge mission. Mission control was going to be here in Leicester. And unfortunately, everything worked well, except it didn't unfold fully, you know, so you couldn't communicate with it. Um, But... Yeah, so Bepi Colombo, James Webb, ExoMars, Juno, these are all missions that Lester is intrinsically involved with in the hardware and the actual data processing. And 
I grew up in the States. I had heard of Leicester as an undergraduate because of the cutting-edge space research. So it's, it's very much on the map in global terms, and I'd love to be a student here. Is this, still, is this still... <laughs> Leicester, hold on, before yeah. you, I just want to point out, by the way, Richard, that, um, I mean, we're like the, the least qualified people here because Tamala is also a doctor uh, <laughs> and, and is a radio astronomer, aren't you? Yes, I went down, so I didn't do x-rays, I did the other spectrum, which was uh, the other end was radio astronomy, I was looking at black holes and galaxies, but uh, Leicester was on my map early on because of expert, experts here. That's fantastic. Is this still an issue, though, the, the British, the Britain doesn't do space? Is, is it's taking a long time to get this over to people that actually it does, and there's loads of stuff going on, and there's quite a lot of money there now? I actually think it's our job to get that message across. I think that's, that's something that we really have to work towards because if we don't highlight the great science we're doing and the great technology we're developing, then people won't understand that we're an integral part of the European Space Agency and we're involved in all of these missions. And I think Rosetta did a really great job of that. And I hope that moving forwards we can emulate that with Bepi Colombo. Well, since our last podcast, I'm sorry to say, there are now only four people still alive who have walked on the moon. Buzz Aldrin, Dave Scott, Charlie Duke and Jack Smith. Apollo 12 astronaut and artist Alan Bean died at the end of May. Now, I was lucky enough to meet him and visit his uh, Houston studio, as you can imagine. He was a delight. He was exactly as you see him or hear him in interviews, and I've even got a signed copy of one of his books. Well, not only was he the fourth man on the moon, Alan Bean helped save the entire mission when shortly after launch, the crew's Saturn V rocket was struck by lightning. The hell was that? I lost a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. 12 Houston, try FCE to auxiliary, over. Try FCE to auxiliary. What the hell is that? Do something. FCE, FCE to auxiliary. Try the buses. Get the buses back in the line. Everything looks good. FCE to auxiliary. So that's the original cockpit recording from Apollo 12. And the heroes of that exchange are John Aaron in Mission Control. You don't hear him there, but he remembered this fairly obscure SCE switch. And Alan Bean in the command module, who knew it was and switched it. Um, Alan Bean is also the astronaut who, uh, when he was on the moon, accidentally pointed the colour TV camera at the sun, which zapped the tube. And that has fueled a zillion moon landing conspiracy Oh, we're back to the Yeah. Um, and also, when he became a full-time artist, most of the pictures he painted of the grey and dusty moon uh, were in vivid colours. So he'll be, he'll be sadly missed. So that is one of the great sort of historical... Uh, heroic moments um, of the space program, this SCE to Orcs. Is that something you were familiar with, Susie? No. No. It's too young. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. But you can buy shirts with this on. You can get, you know, <laughs> keep calm and turn uh, and switch SCE oh, to Orcs. I, I mean, that is the ultimate geek shirt. Yeah, but now we've told yeah, yeah, you. Now we've told you. You'll one. see it everywhere. Yeah, you'll see yeah, it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great. Well, uh, thank you very much to all our guests here at the Space Centre in Leicester. Uh, Emma Bunce, Susie Imber, Tamala Masil. Dan Kendall, and to the Space Centre for hosting us. I'm delighted to say that um, I'll be back here on October the 15th with the Mercury 13 member Wally Funk on the day uh, my book, Wally Funk's Race for Space, is actually released. And we'll be doing several events um, here in Leicester, unless you haven't cancelled us, have you? No, not at all. I'm so excited, actually, because this is it's going to be October half term. Uh, we're also celebrating Apollo 7, the first manned Apollo mission this time, because it's the 50th anniversary this October. Uh, we've got Bepi Colombo launch. It's going to be a really exciting month, month actually. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And do check out the National Space Centre website for details. Apollo 7, that's the famous for the grumpy astronauts, isn't it? It who is. never flew in space again yes, after that mission. Yes, although we have hosted Walt Cunningham. He's a delight. But, um, yeah, some head colds going on. They weren't feeling that well. A bit of a small mutinies. And, yeah, they didn't fly again. But the mission itself was <laughs> flawless. that, it was great, yeah. <laughs> the, the mission itself was flawless and allowed people to have the confidence to then do Apollo 8, which was that moonshot. You know, so it, it was a very pivotal moment. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Do follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram if we remember to post any pictures on that. Uh, next month we'll be celebrating seven years of Space Boffins. Can you believe it? Do join us and thanks for listening.